Welcome to what I would call um, one of the greatest highlights of our Startup Health Festival for the second year in a row. Although he doesn't truly need an introduction, I'd be remiss if I didn't take just a minute or two to say a few words. Just this morning when I was thinking about what I would say, I happened to check email and somebody had forwarded me an article that was entitled, How to Consistently Act from Your Deepest Why. Our next guest embodies that principle completely. I've seen how his passion to help, his strong determination, and his belief in equality drives him to make a difference in people's lives every day. At Startup Health, we've always believed the transformation of healthcare and healthcare system is only possible with the collaboration of all the stakeholders. Our next guest has spent his entire career going around the world to make collaboration happen. From its inception in 2011 at the White House, there they are, it's a younger Steve in uh, Unity, uh, Startup Health has brought together entrepreneurs and others who, are, who encourage innovation to improve patient outcomes. We are living by the Vice President's deepest belief that we are stronger together than we are apart. As a surgeon who specializes in cancer reconstruction, I see the inefficiencies of healthcare and the health system every day. As an entrepreneur, I see the potential for a reimagined and reinvented healthcare industry. As a person, I see too many people suffering and dying unnecessarily from preventable diseases. We are at a unique moment in time where all the conditions are aligned to truly create real and sustainable change in the way we care for patients, care for each other. In 2015, Vice President Biden was tasked with leading one of the most important missions of our generations, the Moonshot to End Cancer. He was chosen by President Obama to lead mission control because of his unique ability to understand complex issues, to find common ground, and to unite people. Since leaving the White House, he's continued the fight against cancer by creating the Biden Cancer Initiative, whose mission is to accelerate the progress in cancer prevention, detection, diagnosis, and care. As his son-in-law, I've witnessed firsthand his passion and determination to change cancer, not only as the vice president, but as a father who's experienced its devastating effects. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome my father-in-law, the former vice president of the United States, Joe Biden. Hey folks, how are you? Jojo. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please, please sit down. Although you won't believe it, I was not around when Adlai Stevenson, the elder, was running for president, but he had a great expression. He said, flattery is fine as long as you don't inhale. Uh, I'm not inhaling, and uh, I hope you feel the same way you felt at the start of the speech at the end of the speech. Uh, but thank you for having me, Howard, and for Startup Health, having me back again. I understand uh, I see a couple really good friends. Uh, Joe Chiani has become one of my closest friends. Joe is in a health enterprise that is, uh, 
is uh, working on preventing uh, preventable deaths in hospitals and as a, a multi-billion a billion dollar company doing it and has done great, great work and is a great friend. Um, and uh, I understand, is Dean Ornish here? Dean, are you here? I was told he might be here. Well, Dean was one of those guys when my son was diagnosed with what many of you know is essentially a, a death sentence, a stage four glioblastoma, his brain, uh, that uh, Dean was immediately on a plane and came to Delaware and sat down with me and sat with Bo and, uh, and worked, uh, worked hard to uh, help, uh, extend his, uh, help extend his life. And uh, Toby and Anita here, the Cosgroves, who have done so, so very much for setting a standard as to how we should operate in medicine. And I don't know how Cleveland Clinic's still working, Toby, but, uh, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to call you a friend and have worked with you over the years. And I'm glad to be back again this year to speak to so many entrepreneurs and technologists, docs, innovators and, uh, in this room. And uh, a lot's happened in a year. And I want to spend my time today talking about this journey that uh, uh, so many of us have been on. Many of you, uh, for decades before I uh, came into the picture, a journey that, uh, that to take, uh, a journey that I took uh, to deal with cancer. And uh, when President Obama announced the moonshot, uh, he didn't tell me at the State of the Union. It was always a surprise in the State of the Union. I sat behind him, and every year he gave me some massive assignment, but he'd never tell me until <laughs> that moment. He liked the look on my face, I guess. You think I'm joking. I'm not. Joe will handle a $780 billion program to revive the economy. Sheriff Joe, and, you know, Joe will do. And he turned and said, all right, I never wanted to go to space. That was never one of my great desires, but uh, when he made me the head of mission control, at least I knew I was on the ground for the moonshot. Um, but uh, uh, when the president put me in control, uh, we didn't say we were going to cure cancer in 2016, but we set our sights on a much longer fight. Uh, that's because cancer doesn't respond to presidents, vice presidents, queens, or Congress. Cancer has its own pace. It uses every tool in the book, every single device possible to hide and to okay. cause death. And uh, what we did say, though, we were going to do all we could to make a decade's worth of progress preventing, detecting, diagnosing, and treating cancer in half that time. <clears throat> that was the goal. And by the way, the reason that I got to this was when Bo was diagnosed, Bo, my son, my oldest son, was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma. I did what all of you would do, and some of you have had to do. And some of you have been through what I've been through and a lot worse in both your, in your personal life, notwithstanding your professional inv involvement. And what I did, I tried to find out everything I could learn about cancer, everything I could learn about the disease he had. And I had access to literally anyone in the world as vice president. And what I learned was that um, we'd reached an inflection point, a point where, uh, where uh, um, Science and technology began to uh, merge in a way it hadn't before. 
where all of a sudden immunotherapy came out of the wilderness it had been in for five years before my son was diagnosed. Those of you involved in immunotherapy were viewed as some kind of witch doctors almost. Uh, all, all kidding aside, it was not a serious, you were not seriously integrated. We had virologists and we had chemical engineers and an entire discipline, core of disciplines, never having worked together, beginning to work together in earnest. And that gave me hope. So the cancer moonshot went from being a cause that we had in mind to a movement, a movement that had generated excitement around the world because virtually everyone is affected by cancer. Unless you think I'm exaggerating, we had the Nuclear Nonproliferation Summit at the White House. 50 heads of state sitting in the West Room where you see the big press conferences take place around a large rectangular tables that had been set up. President in front of the fireplace, me with my back to the hallway. In deadly earnest tones, the president said before the start, he said, quote, I know you all want to talk to Joe about cancer, but let's deal with nuclear proliferation first. And, <laughs> and by the way, it was absolutely serious. Every head of state I've gotten to know, and it's not hyperbole, Every head of state in the last, every major leader in the world, the last 44 years. Everywhere I go, even today, they want to talk to me about cancer. <clears throat> Sitting with um, the leader of, uh, of uh, in, in the Middle East, I went to meet with, uh, um, and, and, uh, with MBZ uh, in, uh, and standing with his security team and mine. We're on the Gulf in a, under a tent in a beautiful night to talk about ISIS. And before he begins, he said, before we begin, I had six experts, and he had his six experts. He said, can we talk about cancer? Nine nations signed memorandum of understanding with us, desperately wanting to work with us to deal with fighting cancer. In my career of public service, I've never seen anything, never seen anything like the uniform goodwill enthusiasm, commitment, and I might add, bipartisan support. It may be the only bipartisan thing left in America <clears throat> to support the moonshot. And it's because of that we're able to make a great deal of progress in that year. In the final year of our administration as part of the moonshot, we helped launch over 80 collaborations, initiatives between the public sector and the private sector. After sh sitting down at and describing roundtable conversations and speeches all over the world, all over the country. And that we've tracked and been encouraged to follow through on these commitments that were made. Mainly focusing on two things, the urgency of now and changing the culture, changing the culture to vastly expand cooperation. That's what attracts me to Startup Health not just my incredible admiration for my son-in-law, well, and it is amazing. <laughs> He's one of the finest men I've ever known in my life, and that's when a father-in-law says that, you know it means something. Okay? <laughs> All right? I love him like he's my own son. But here's the deal. You got together for what reason? You know collaboration, genuine collaboration across disciplines is more likely to generate results than anything you can do individually. If you let your egos get out of the way, if you actually begin to share information and data, 
So, for example, we advanced prevention. George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and Case Western in Cleveland partnered to take on lung cancer prevention and screening because the smoking rates in those two cities is double that the national average. Sounds strange, but it's never been done before. That collaboration, which you think would be automatic, in every other endeavor, it would already have been done, except medicine, except medicine. You all are brilliant, involved in medicine. You all are dedicated. I've never met a more dedicated group of people, but you all are antiquated in the way in which you approach your business model. It's fundamentally different in every other discipline I've been engaged in. We also wanted to increase early detection. So the National Cancer Institute, we initiated a national program to identify people with Lynch syndrome that causes stage four colorectal and other cancers in 20 and 30 year olds. Well, you can detect whether you have that syndrome if you have early testing. You get early testing, you find you have the syndrome, you can constantly, instead of waiting until you're 40 for your first colonoscopy, you get one when you're 18. You're able to prevent yourself from reaching the point where you have an incurable disease. You'd think that would already be done. You'd think we'd already be talking about that. Surprise to me, as someone who's not in the field, that there's not a major, major effort to save thousands of lives, to improve early diagnosis and decrease uh, in disease tracking. Representatives from government, academia, the pharmaceutical and diagnostic companies launched a partnership, the Blood Profiling Atlas, a so-called blood pack, to create an open database of liquid biopsies, liquid biopsies, blood draws. This means they're sharing early data, and often as they develop the technology to detect and track this cancer from simple blood draws. Imagine the potential impact. Imagine, because you know we will find out through the work of some of you entrepreneurs and the medical device folks out there. We're gonna find out and be able to test someone when they're 14 years old or 20 years old whether they have cancer cells that will ultimately develop, be able to diagnose what specific cancer it is, where it is, rather than have to go in and do a biopsy, which may do real damage. There's enormous promise, but the data has never been shared before. It's never been shared before. To get patients the right treatment the first time, and you all know, I'm, I'm, I say you, I shouldn't say this, but you know, there are medical people and there are technicians and there are people who don't know a lot about this area as well, but are, are understand what the needs we have to be able to tackle it. So I, I don't want to act like I assume you're all, you're all clinicians or researchers. Many of you are, though. But for example, we're able now, for the first time, to determine, because you can get a, for example, your human, the uh, cancer genome sequenced at Walter Reed as readily and as well as you can get anywhere in the world, um, and you can get it done quickly. It's the largest hospital in the world the largest hospital in the world. More cancer patients than any hospital in the world. All this data. Now, you can find out what particular strain of cancer you have. 
Back when Nixon declared the war on cancer, the thought was there's a single cancer. And the image was Dr. Jonas Salt in the laboratory finding the silver bullet to cure cancer. There's over four, 204 explicitly different cancers out there requiring different treatments. Well, you all know if you get the best treatment first, it increases your prospects exponentially rather than a treatment that's been used before but has a high failure rate. So I got a call out of the blue from the chairman of the board of IBM. Did I want Watson? Did I want Watson to be made available to me in this effort? Watson has read every single solitary piece of data that has ever been written in the history of the world about cancer. Every research paper ever published in the world. Well, guess what? Literally in a matter of hours, identifying the particular cancer genome sequence you have, identifying the particular cancer, they can tell you every treatment that has been used, what the percentages are, and what the differences are. We're going to save a lot of lives because of that. The use of existing technology to increase, to increase clinical trials. Many of you know from your own experience. How many of you, if you don't mind my asking, have either personally or had someone you love and close to you suffer from, survive and or die from cancer? Raise your hand. You know of what I speak. You know of what I speak. So, if we're able to get data quickly, quickly, we engage the president's innovative fellows, excuse me, innovation fellows. The president had a great idea and we got there. He went to Silicon Valley and said, send me a team of the brightest people you have in the Valley to help me modernize the way we do business to conduct government. Some of the greatest folks in the, in the world. And so this innovation team I went to with the president's permission and said, here's what I'd like you to do. Right now, many times, a cancer trial is the only, only access to maybe being able to live making. <clears throat> but only 4% of all the people diagnosed with cancer ever qualify or get into a trial. 4%. 4 out of 100. And it's because the docs don't know where to go. They can't go to one site and find out everything is available. They can if you're at Jefferson or Sloan Kettering or Anderson or one of the great cancer hospitals. But if you live in Bemidji, you may have a first-rate I mean this sincerely, a first-rate oncologist who identifies with precision what your cancer is. They have no idea what trials are available. None. Hear me? None. Well, I went to these guys and said, can you develop a website for me? Just like it would have our bank trying to figure out, set up a website to do mobile banking. And in a matter of two weeks, they put together a website where you can use plain English you can pump in your zip code. You can pump in, you don't have to put your name down, the type of cancer. You can, whether you can identify it in colloquial terms, breast cancer, colon cancer, et cetera, and go down the line. And you can find out every single trial in America that is being conducted for that type of cancer and every single trial in your neighborhood. And you can find out how to qualify. Insurance companies love it. Researchers love it, but it's a simple proposition. It took folks like you in the audience to say, wait a minute. 
If we're not able to get into these trials, we don't know where they are, there ought to be a simple solution in the 21st century to that. Well, when I raised the question, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I guess maybe we should do something like that. And I'm not technologically capable of anything. <laughs> but all kidding aside, a lot of this is not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward stuff. And look, to speed research progress through data sharing, we launched the National Cancer Institute Genomic Data Commons at the University of Chicago to bring together cancer sequencing data, data and related patient information from the Cancer Genome Atlas at NIH, which had roughly, roughly 14,000 individuals' cases represented there, all anonymous. That database is now up to 40,000, and it continues to grow as this year 10 additional countries are contributing their data to this. From Germany to China, Australia to Sweden, they all signed Memorandum of Understanding with the United States to share patient genomic treatment outcome data, adding tens of thousands of patients, not only to the genomic data commons, but to new uh, prototomic data sharing commons and imaging repositories. Well, now you researchers have a treasure trove of places to look. The important thing is all this data is available and accessible to any researcher anywhere, eliminating the silos. The data has already, just since it's been not quite a year yet, already been, already been assessed by over 80 million times. Hear me? <clears throat> 80 million times. Increasing exponentially the prospect that we'll find answers. Folks, you know this. We now have supercomputers super through the Department of Energy that can, right now as I speak, do a million billion calculations per second. A million billion calculations per second. It's no longer classified, but I can now tell you, within a matter of three years, we'll be able to do a billion billion calculations per second. Imagine if we had one single repository with 20 million cancer genomes sequenced and all the data assessed. They could, in a matter of minutes, find patterns and answers that would take 20 Nobel laureates two decades to go through. The possibilities are enormous. Enormous. We also have to get to a place where patients Patients have access to their records and can do with them what they want. Joe and I talked about this. I was announcing the new genome, the, uh, the, the cancer system out of the University of uh, Chicago. And the doc showing me around was very great guy, great researcher. And the press was following me. And I sa he said, uh, well, we need more data. And I said, well, you know, patients are prepared to give their data. So no, no, patients are not willing to give up their data. I said, well, I've not met one yet that isn't. But I called the press up. I said, folks, I turned to the doctor. I said, I'll bet you, doc, if I ask for 15 minutes of prime time in all the networks, I promise you I'll get it. 
for cancer. And I'm going to do that, and I'm going to say to all the patients out there, send your data to the following repository. One. Well, no, 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 I'm sure we can do this. I'm sure we can do this. I'm not exaggerating. This has become my calling. I'm not exaggerating. Like, oh, well, well, when my boy was dying, I asked whether or not I could have access, we could have access to his cancer genome sequencing at a great hospital. I said, well, that'll be hard. I said, guess what? It'll be fixed in five minutes. It's not going to be hard. You're going to find out what hard really is. <laughs> I'm not joking. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, why is it that hospitals are reluctant to allow that data to be transferred? Because you might go somewhere else. You might go somewhere else. Every hospital here will say, no, no, that's not how we do that. But give me a break. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, society's like a wave. The waves move on, but the particles remain the same. God ain't made a new brand of man in a millennia. So folks, there's things we can go through. To advance new therapies, dozens of biopharmaceutical companies have agreed to share compounds, which they have under investigation now, and they're researching, testing. So we set up, I asked, why can't, if you walk into a, uh, a restaurant or a bar and you want to play a jukebox, you put the money in. You, you don't have to have a separate license agreement with Beyonce to play her song. Well, guess what? What did we find out, those of you who did a lot of research on AIDS? Multiple drugs may be the answer. There's a growing sense among researchers that the combination of drugs may be the answer to certain types of cancers. But for me to go to drug company A, B, C, and D, all working on the same particular cancer, all going at a slightly different direction, and I say, can I use all four of your drugs to research? It could take somewhere between two years and never to be able to get that done, and with some good reason sometimes. So what do we do? I ask NIH to sit down and figure out ahead of time a licensing agreement so that if and get, they assess the intellectual property value of your drug. So your drug may be assessed at worth 35%. Your drug, 30%. Your drug, 30 and yours, 5. Did I get to 100? I don't know. Anyway. Um, and so that if a cure is found using that and a therapy is marketed, you already know what your share is. And guess what? You don't have to send, spend millions of bucks Drilling a dry hole, as he used to say in the oil business. That's the cost, the incredible amount of the cost of research. Well, guess what? It started off, we only had a few companies. Now there are over a dozen companies, and they lay all the drugs out on a table. Say anybody, any researcher can use them, because the liability is settled ahead of time, the intellectual property value is ahead of time, et cetera. Well, it increases again. I use the word twice now. Exponentially, the prospect that somebody may find a key to one or two or 10 particular types of cancer. To invest, to increase investment in research. You may remember the last year, 
last two years of our administration with control of the Congress or the other team, we weren't getting a whole lot of cooperation. And by the way, I'm not making a political statement, it's just a reality. And the election was over. We were lame duck from November the 7th, I guess it was, until January the 20th, but we're still in charge. And so I was working with a group of leaders in the Republican and Democratic Party on what they call a Cures Act. And it's about targeted medicine and talk about, it's also about cancer research and the rest, NIH. But where I was told that not a single penny would be appropriated till the new president came in. Well, the only thing I know more about than anybody else you know is how the Senate and Congress works. Not a joke. I've been there. I was there for 36 years. Only 13 people ever served as long as I have, and I was relatively successful there at getting things done. So I went up and gathered up Republicans and Democrats, leaders, guys like the senator from Tennessee, who is a first-rate Senator Alexander, Diane DeGette, others, and got them all together. Well, with only six days left in the administration, Congress was going out of session permanently. Guess what? We not only named, we appropriated $6.9 billion. $6.9 billion. And to show you there's still a lot of decency in the Congress, I was presiding over it as president of the Senate, and Mitch McConnell moved to rename the bill after my deceased son, Bo, who they all knew, which was a generous, generous thing to do. And so the president came along, and he offered to keep proposed cutting $10 billion from NIH. They said, thank you, Mr. President. No, and they increased it by another $2 billion. And they're about to increase it again by another $2 billion. And by the way, philanthropy <coughs> is incredibly important, but it pales in comparison to the funding that comes from the federal government and the pure research that is conducted by the government. So folks, there is a consensus here, a bipartisan consensus to get the funding to do whatever we want to do. But it requires your expertise. And the reason it does is we've got to show results. The American public would be willing to spend $100 billion if the Lord Almighty came to everybody in their dream and said, if we invest $100 billion, we can cure cancer. They would spend it in a heartbeat. But they got to know we're not wasting it. They got to know we're making progress. They got to, we got to show tangible results. And that's what this is all about. These are just a few examples. As I said, we made a great deal of progress in 2016 <clears throat> as part of the moonshot. But our work isn't nearly done. A group of 21 leaders of the major cancer hospitals, four Nobel laureates, Eric Lander up at the Brood Institute, a number of people, David Agus, a whole lot of people came to me. And they went first to McKenzie and Company and asked them to put together a game plan because the administration didn't have the same, the people in the administration did. But this only works if you have somebody who's willing to stay in it every single minute of every single day and has the authority of the president. For example, when I got this job and I called meetings of all the people involved, they said NIH expected to be there. 
the national, the uh, um, uh, uh, the the health agencies were there, et cetera. But I also had there the Department of Energy, the, the NASA, the the Department of uh, of uh, Homeland. I mean, excuse me, the uh, the, the patent office. Ask, what are all these people doing here? I said, they all have something to do with curing cancer. NASA's forgotten more about radiation than any of you will ever learn. And any, I'm serious, in any other agency. Maybe protons are the answer. The damage being done by radiation, et cetera. Well, one particular head of a department, so I said, have you filled the assistant position here? This person looked at me very good person, happened to be a man in this case, and said, well, well, this was March. Well, we'll have it filled by January. I looked at my watch. I said, it's 10 after 5, March the 9th. If it's not filled by April 1st, you're fired. And he knew I had the authority to fire him, and I would have fired him. Well, lo and behold, in two weeks, we had an incredibly competent person. The urgency of now. The urgency of now. So when we left the White House, many people, some in this room, came forward and encouraged Jill and me, my wife, to continue to work to speed progress against cancer. They convinced us that we can continue to make a meaningful contribution because, not of our expertise, but we can do two things pretty well. We can convene, and we're able to generate collaboration. Or as, uh, as the head of the Brood Institute says, Mr. Vice President, you can convene and shame very well. <laughs> Less poetic, but, uh, but guess what? Things are beginning to happen. With the support of many in this room on our board of directors, and some here that are on the board, we launched a nonprofit organization last June, the Biden Cancer Initiative, to bring to life our vision of a day when we can effectively prevent, diagnose, treat, and care for every cancer patient and reduce the disparities that exist. And we have a phenomenal board, Liz Jaffe, one of the pioneers in immunotherapy, Nobel laureate Elizabeth Blackburn, oncologist, best-selling author David Agus, Eric Lander, president of the Brood Institute. I could go on and on. My son-in-law. Uh, you know, we, we, we have patient advocates who want to use their experience and their voices to make a difference, like Taboo, the musician for Black Eyed Peas, Aaron Andrews, a Fox NFL sideline reporter, co-host of Dancing with the Stars. We're bringing in people who are on the patient side of this. We have physicians like Dr. Carol Brown, who directs the diversity programs in clinical care research and training at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Sloan Kettering. And of course, as I said, Howard Krein and Startup Health. To understand the magnitude of the challenge we face, let me not talk about the initiative itself for a moment, but about the community of patients, physicians, researchers, entrepreneurs, technologists, foundations, hospitals, universities that make up this enterprise. Folks, look, over the past two years, I've literally met with thousands of researchers. There's two major research organizations that exist. One has 19,000 researchers that are part cancer researchers, and the other smaller than that. I've met with patients and families, and I've learned a great deal about the progress you've all made 
and are on the cusp of making. I've, uh, I've heard the stories of triumph and survival, and I've been stunned by the enormity of hope spiraling up against the odds. And I've seen uh, firsthand patients, their physicians, their caregivers and researchers looking to the next set of answers. Hope for better therapies that don't rely on radiation or chemicals, chemotherapy, that do harm, as much harm as they do good. Hope for early detection that can save lives that would uh, otherwise be lost to uh, the hardest cancers to treat. Hope for children through new understandings of what cancers, what causes cancer childhood cancers and development of new, new promising therapies like immunotherapies for children. Hope for survivors to live a full life and avoid recurrence of cancer. And that brings me back to the initiative. I told you that our mission was, was earlier, well, to put it another way, we're trying to create, we're trying to create the cancer research enterprise and cancer healthcare system that people think we already have. I sat next to a brilliant young woman on the way out. She heads up all the drone programs for the Department of, uh, of uh, well, for you know those departments. <laughs> brilliant young woman, still in her 30s, advanced degrees from great universities. And um, I asked her, we got talking about cancer, and I asked her uh, what she thought we were already doing. And then I have her, had her take a look at my speech. And like me, when I was trying to find out more about Bo, I was like, you're not already doing this? I bet that many people have had the experience my family and I had when we went out firsthand to try to figure out what was going on. I know we were surprised. We were overwhelmed. And we were dismayed, in many cases, by how things were organized. From what I learned over the last two years, there's so much opportunity to make things work better now. If we didn't make one new breakthrough, we could extend lives and save lives that aren't being saved. I'd like to be able to say that the affordability of canceled treatment is getting better, not worse. But I can't. It's getting worse. Even if the treatment is fairly priced based on total cost of research and is valued as a life-saving drug, there are literally tens of thousands of Americans who cannot afford the treatment. They cannot afford it. How can we in America say, this drug will save your life or extend your life, but you can't afford it? How can we say that? I like to say there is widely distributed and applied techniques and mechanisms to share data among researchers, clinicians, and patients, but I can't. I'd like to be able to say that cancer diagnosis in St. Louis is decipherable by another doctor in Memphis in the case of a patient who moves or seeks a second opinion, but I can't say that. I've heard a physician saying that because of the lack of uniform standards that exist in taking biopsies, they would not trust a pathology report from another institution, let alone in their own hospital. I'm a lawyer. I didn't know how to do anything else. But I didn't know you didn't get taught in medical school a precise a precise way in which to save biopsies and assure that they're still relevant. I'd like to say that since 
It was the idea Barack and I had when we did the Recovery <coughs> Act, which was over $800 billion. We put $35 billion in it. We wrote it ourselves. Third, in the interregnum period, in the 64 of a tower in Chicago. We put in $35 billion because we were told, we were both fairly educated men, we were told that what would save money and increase positive outcomes was electronic me medical record keeping that could be instantaneously shared. Well, we put 35 billion bucks out there. Six of your outfits came along and came up with a great idea, five of you. Six billion apiece. You can't talk to one another. It's all siloed. So when Bo was dealing with anti-PD-1 and as a last resort, and an adenovirus injected into his brain, he had to have an MRI at least once a day, sometimes more. There was no way for us to get the material, no way to get those records from Walter Reed down to MD Anderson. None. Howard would go in and take a picture on his cell phone. The 21st, can you imagine any business surviving? Can you imagine any tech business you're involved in surviving? What in the hell is wrong with us? What are we doing? That's why we need you. We need you to break down these silos. There's technological ways to do this. Some of it's close to rocket science, but most of it's not even close. I'd like to say that your doctor in Bemidji, Minnesota, has all the tools needed to treat whichever cancer he may have just had diagnosed in the genome sequence for. Just as the doctors at Dana-Farber or Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson can do. But I can't. I can't say that. I would like to say that people in every zip code are getting tested for detectable cancers before they progress to the fatal degree, but I can't. Why not? I'd like to say the government moving quickly to modernize our approach to funding research that prioritizes progress, not credit. But I can't. If you're an astrophysicist and you come to me in the government as vice president and you want $40 million to study the seventh ring of Saturn and you get a grant from NASA, whatever your study, failure or success, you've got to publish for the whole world to see. Many clinicians and researchers have gotten grants of 10, 20, 30, 40, over 80% never publish. Or when they publish, they hide behind publications that cost $160,000 a year to subscribe to. So since the president gave me authority, I had a little idea. And so for every day you're supposed to, under the law, you have to publish <coughs> once the study's done, success or failure, because you learn from failures as well as from successes. Well, guess what? I said, from now on, there will be a $1,000 a day personal fine. $10,000 a day. Well, as they say in southern parts of my state, all of a sudden people started seeing Jesus at an altar call. <laughs> guess what? Y'all started reporting. Folks, in each of these problem areas, there's a reason grounded in tradition, in culture, in history, 
and personal advancement that may have once been very valid, but certainly aren't valid any longer. But they are strongly resistant to change. That's why I need you guys to start up health, to push this change. And that brings me to the real work of the initiative. Imagine what we can do together. I see the day when prevention is more effective, when each and every community has access to it, so that no one dies from a treatable cancer because it's discovered much too late. That's within our grasp. That's real. I see the day when those of you in this room, when you take your children or grandchildren for their preschool physical, where they'll be vaccinated against certain cancers, like you can be vaccinated against HPV now. That's on the horizon, saving lives. I see the day when we'll be able to identify through markers in the blood cancers that haven't yet developed. I see the day when, 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 when care is personalized and more effective with less harmful side effects. Or if we don't have a treatment targeted to the genomics of your particular cancer, we can at least offer the, 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 the most focused and least harmful radiation for the drug that's possible, reducing the damage. I see the day when we understand why immunotherapy drug works for one patient but not another. And we treat each patient with the right therapy the first time, increasing the efficacy significantly. I see the day when patients don't have to decide between keeping their home and affording life-saving treatments. There has to be a way for society to take on this responsibility. Some of these drugs now are up, <clears throat> or up to $180,000 a month. Raise your hand to those you can afford it. I see the day when cancer survivors have few long-term side effects and the social-emotional care they need to return to their lives. There's so much hope and promise, but we aren't there yet. We need to develop the right systems to get us there. That's the goal of the Biden Cancer Initiative. We're focused on issues that I think we are uniquely positioned to improve and change. And we're going to continue to catalyze change everywhere we can. For example, it's not for me to say which clinical trials should be launched, but I do want us to rethink the way we do clinical trials to be more patient-centric. It is our role to look at the data sharing and ask, how are we going to deal with the enormous patient desire to be involved in research by sharing their data? when institutional obstacles that are grounded in history and economics stay in place. How do we go from where we are, when data, where we were when data was scarce, to now where data is abundant? How do we go from holding important information to be willing to share it? How do we do it in a way that lets people be involved in sharing their data and lets you be rewarded, rewarded and compensated for all the great work you've done. I've never met a more dedicated group of people in my life. For example, when you go to a doctor and you give, all, you give them all sorts of proxies to treat your leukemia, because you need the help, they can assess your medical history, they can run your health insurance information, even your financials. I think the patients should be able to 
should be also be able to sign a form that directs the doctor to send their data wherever the patient wants it sent. No questions asked. None. Zero. Not just for the sake of data sharing, but to drive. Drive the research and development that gets us better prevention, detection, treatment, and care. Here's how we're doing this. We've convened 25-person advisory board, including uh, um, Anish. Is Anish here? Yeah, Anish was here. Anish, I don't want yep. to ruin your reputation, but you're on that advisory board. Um, yeah. and, uh, and cancer centers, uh, heads of cancer centers like Laurie Glimsher and uh, from Dana-Farber and, uh, and Stan, are you here from Case Western? Really serious, serious people. And right now, right now, they're working focused on finding the right practical specific solutions that will address the data sharing, data standards, and clinical trial design and the execution, and to tell us what role the Biden institution should be playing in order to promote that. And Jill and I, personally, what role we can play to help maintain this sense of urgency. And secondly, we launched the Cancer Collaborative led by Jill DeBrethergan to bring together cancer patients, advocacy groups to solve problems. I'm going on much too long because I get too passionate about this. I apologize. But let me say, you know, you all have navigators on your new cars. You can plug in the destination and they're going to get you there. You all raised your hand, almost everyone having dealt with cancer. You need a navigator. You need a navigator. You need to be able to know whether or not somebody can take care of the kids to be able to get to your treatment for your chemotherapy. You need to be able to know everything, which hall in the hospital to go down to where you're supposed to be. You need navigators. And that's where we're in the process of trying to set up a massive proposal where you can punch in and plug in and get all that navigational help you need. There's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but I've already talked much too much. Let me just conclude by saying that, folks, there is an enormous capacity, enormous capacity for us to, uh, to do an awful lot more. We've set up uh, an outfit called a, a site called Hashtag Cancer Fierce. We really would like, particularly entrepreneurs, your ideas, what do you think, we, the kinds of things we should be doing in the cancer field to expedite access to data, information, and the like. And I'm, I'm, I'm seriously inviting you to look at it and give us your ideas. In conclusion, it's my challenge for you today that, you know, Yo-Yo Ma, the famous cellist, once said, everyone thinks practice makes perfect. It does not. Practice makes permanent. Only perfect practice makes perfect. Well, I challenge you, as people deeply involved in healthcare and health, everyone involved in cancer in particular, I challenge you, take a hard look at your practice and ask yourself, am I practicing perfectly? Am I practicing in a way that makes the old way permanent? It's awful hard to change, man. It's awful hard to change, even you know the change has to take place. It's disconcerting. Past practices that created data silos, 
that minimized the role of patients, that created the wrong kind of competition instead of the right kind of collaboration. They need to change. And we need your help as to what are some of the answers to do that. Not denying anyone their ability to get the credit they deserve for what they do. We gotta move faster. 18 million now, 26 million by 2022 in the world. And a larger percentage dying, leaving behind entire networks of people damaged, bruised, shaken by what they go through. Cancer is a shared disease in terms of impact on a family. And folks, it really is about now. I'll stop. Any clinicians in here? How many times, Doc, has a patient come to you and said, Doc, I know you can't save my life. I know that. But can you give me just four more weeks? I want to see him graduate. Just four more weeks, Doc. That's all I'm asking. Doc. I know I'm not going to live, but Doc, can you give me six weeks? It's my first grandchild. I want to be there. Or Doc, give me two more months. I want to walk her down the aisle, Doc. All I need is two months. This is about minutes. This is about days. This is about weeks. It's about months for so many people. They're not asking to be saved. They're asking, just give me a little more time. Doc, if I have six more months, I can put this deal together and leave my family financially secure. Can you help me? You don't have to find a single additional cure to be able to increase the prospect you've been able to say yes if we collaborate more. I really realize, I'm sorry, I get so passionate about this. I've kept you standing. I've kept you for much longer than I should have. But uh, I tell you, this operation you put together here, you're the only group that gets it intuitively. It's about collaboration. It's about collaboration. We got the best minds in the world, some of them in this room. There's no reason why we can't change the face of cancer in the next five years. Thank you for trying. Appreciate it. Sorry. Talk about anything you want. While you're standing, it's a good excuse to move out of the room, too. So don't feel obliged to stay for this, for real. I know I've kept you much too long. Oh, my goodness. So if you can all imagine, I had to go down and ask him for his daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> Not intimidating at all. You know what I said? I'm going to embarrass him. I said, before you even ask me, the answer is yes. Because you respect my daughter as an equal. 
You treat her as an equal, and that's all I ask because she deserves it. And so, but the Secret Service knew. They said, there's a guy outside waiting to see you. They said, I think, I think he's going to ask you to marry your daughter. <laughs> How the hell they knew that, I don't know. That is true. As I was going in through the gates, they said, congratulations. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't know. Anyway. So, well, thank you. As always, Pop, that was uh, inspirational, um, uh, poignant to the point, um, and, and truly a call to action. Um, I, before I get into all the cancer stuff, I, I want to address if, if, if I don't, why well, I have you uh, in front of uh, so many friends, uh, address something that I'm asked literally every day, and that is, um, is he really like that in, in private? And in, is he the same person? He's got to be different. And I said, you know what, there's one flavor of, of Joe Biden, and whether it's public or private, this is it. And, uh, you know, you... Doesn't get better. <laughs> yeah, it's... It. And, and the thing is, I mean, truly, as, as someone who knows you so well personally, I mean, you've, you're an inspiration. Um, what is it, what do you think it is that has allowed you to, A, follow your brand, be true to yourself, follow that internal moral compass that we all love um, through 40 years, 40 plus years of public service? The presser here will tell you, no one ever doubts I mean what I say. My problem is I sometimes say all that I mean um, and get in trouble. Um, look, uh, I won the gene pool. I had a mom and dad who were uh, really very, very principled people. And uh, neither well, my mom did, but my dad never raised his hand to us. My mother would occasionally take his shoe off and throw it at you. But, uh, um, but my dad had an expression. He'd say, the measure of success is not if you get knocked down, but how rapidly you get up. Everybody gets knocked down. I have on my desk that I've had for 20, almost 32 years now cartoon from one of those Hallmark card stores you're going to buy, these little framed, uh, uh, rectangular framed things with sayings in them or whatever. Well, this one has two frames of Hagar the Horrible. One day after my wife and daughter were killed and my sons were badly injured, I guess my dad thought I was too down. And he brought it over and gave it to me. It was a sunny summer day. And the first is Hagar the Horrible. Uh, the Viking captain in the cartoons. And Hagar in the first frame that I have on my desk and still on my desk is looking up at his ship is on the rocks, his mast is broken, the horns of his helmet are charred, and he's reaching up at heaven and he's saying, why me, God? And the next frame has in it him standing there in a voice from heaven saying, why not? Why not? What makes me so special that somehow God's going to look to me and spare me of what other people had? And so, and my mother, my mother's expression was, uh, um, and I think it may have been mentioned here, as long as you're alive, you have an obligation to strive. And you're not dead till you've seen the face of God. And she meant it. She meant it. Some of you met my mom. She'd always say, I used to be a very bad stutterer when I was a kid. And you want to be ridiculed, stutter. So 
awful hard to ask the girl to go to the pr 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 prom. Everybody can laugh at it, but if I said I had a cleft lip when I was a kid, no one would laugh at that. But it's totally debilitating. But I was a good athlete, and, and I was not stupid, so, and I learned to fight. But my mother used to say, Joey, remember, you're defined by your courage, and you're redeemed by your loyalty. She said, courage is the greatest of all virtues, because without it, you cannot love with abandon. Think about it. it. Takes courage to love with abandon. And I've been the recipient of so much empathy. So many people have come to my assistance over the years and the difficulties I've been through, from my family to others. And so when you're on that end, when you're on that end of the equation, it's, uh, um, it's not hard. It's not hard to, uh, to be engaged. My dad's other expression, and you've heard me say it a hundred times, Howard, to my sons and to my daughter and your wife and to my grandkids. He'd say, it's a lucky person who gets up in the morning, and think about this now, puts both feet in the floor, knows what he or she is about to do, and thinks it still matters. And thinks it still matters. Think how many successful people you know, doctors, lawyers, business leaders, have been incredibly successful, but no longer think what they do really matters, really stirs them. Well, I think it matters. I have a little quote that I have in my book that I've had for years from Immanuel Kant. Happiness consists of three parts. Something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. And so I don't find any of this at all inconsistent. And I'm not smart enough to be one way in private and another way in public. I'm, I'm not joking. It's hard to do that. I watch people, <laughs> one very glaring example now, who do that. <laughs> but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And so I enjoy what I'm doing. I care about it. and. Uh, um, Richard, do you have my phone? When you, uh, I, I, I want to read you, before we get off the stage, a quote that I hope everyone would aspire to. I have, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a quote from a, uh, well, why don't you ask the next question and I'll find the quote. <laughs> it's a quote by an Irish author. Um, and, uh, and uh, here's what he says. He had the capacity to step out of his own pain and absorb yours. He had the capacity to give you reassurance even when it failed him. He was able to turn his own pain into yours. That's what I asked my kids to aspire to be aspire to be that person. I'm not. But that's an aspiration. But I can't think of anything that could be more satisfying if you can meet it. As you all know, what do you find the most satisfaction? Remember your philosophy classes in undergraduate and graduate school? 
when the argument was, is selflessness really the ultimate test of selfishness because it makes you feel so good? What is it? What are the things that, it's a, it's a psychic remuneration you get. It gives you, gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and, 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 make, and fulfills you. Well, I've been lucky. I've known what I've wanted to do since I was 17 years old. And that's a real gift. And so uh, it's neither good nor bad. It's just, it's just, just who I am. And everybody has a different makeup. But it's not hard work. So, you, you know, you mentioned hope, and I know we, we, we're running out of time, but you mentioned hope, and so many families around the world are going through what we went through. Can you, can you just talk to them, and what, what advice would you give? They're, they're trying to, to keep hope. They're trying to live a normal life while trying to deal with either cancer or you know, one of the family members who is struggling. What, what, how did you keep hope and what, what advice do you have to them to look towards the future? Well, look, I'm not, I'm not the most qualified guy to speak to that at all. Um, you know, there are so many people I've learned, and I mean this sincerely. I remember after my wife and daughter were killed, I got that phone call saying the tractor trailer broadsided and she was dead. And, a poor kid who had to call me was scared to death and just blurted out that my wife and daughter were dead and my sons were not likely to make it. And um, I remember, I was a lawyer then, I'd just been elected, but I still had a law firm. I remember walking out of my law office a month before I, three weeks before I went down to be sworn in, or I didn't go down, they swore me in a dollar and looked at a particular woman working out in the front office. Her husband abused her, left her. She had three children, one of whom was diagnosed with MS. Was it MS? Well, I can't remember, but... Um, and she had nobody. She got up every single day, put one foot in front of the other, and went out, did her job. Think of the millions of people who get up every single day without anywhere near the help that I had, or maybe you had, without any of the embrace that exists, and go out, and they're alone, and they do it. They're incredible. They're incredible. And so I find, for me, when I, I wrote a book about my bow, and... Um, I wrote it for two reasons. One, the really selfish reason was I wanted my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my progeny to have a seriously documented and scrutinized piece of work, because you know it would be, that was absolutely accurate to know what an incredible man my son was. The second reason, though, I wrote it was I wanted to give people hope. And what I, for me, I've always found hope in purpose, something to look forward to, purpose. And I'll conclude by saying that 
I went on the Colbert show a while after Bo had passed away. And I didn't know Colbert had essentially watched a plane crash with his brother, his father, and, and the plane and die. And he came into the green room, which they do before you go on stage, and he started to talk to me. He got so emotional, he started crying. I was consoling him, for real. So we got on the show, and it turned out to be a show totally different than I'd anticipated. And I was, uh, I did not cry, but I was emotional. And we talked about death and loss, and about Bo. And it was really emotional. I got home, my son Hunter, who's the smartest man I know, just raw, pure insight. He said, Dad, we got to go from talking about Bo's loss to the gift Bo gave us. And that's why we started the Bo Biden Foundation, because my son was the leading attorney general in America on fighting to protect children from abuse. He was offered the job of a United States senator, and he turned it down because he committed to prosecute a doctor, a pediatrician in Lewis, Delaware. The, of all the cases of pedophilia recorded in history in the United States, the worst ever, 478 counts, 290 children, as young as three years old being penetrated by him in his office. And my son, put him away so he had six life sentences plus 169 years. He devoted his life to do it. But what he would always say was, Dad, children can't protect themselves. That is our job. And so he has now a national organization that is designed to teach people the signs, what to look for, when to intervene, how to deal with it. And so what Jill and I have found purpose in devoting our lives to the things that I know, I know he'd want us to be doing. And I mean that sincerely. Everybody thinks I titled the book Promise Me Dad because everybody knew he wanted me to run for president. It wasn't promise him to run for president. It was promise me, Dad, you'll stay engaged. Just before he died, Howard knows this, not just before, a couple months before he became incapacitated. We were at his home from dinner. It was only a mile away as the crow flies from my house. And Jill went home to change, and he asked his wife to take the kids upstairs. And I was across the table, and I guess because I'd always say it to my kids, and my mother said to me, he'd say to me when he wanted to make an effort, he said, Dad, look at me. He said, Dad, I know no one in the world loves me more than you do. But Dad, no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay, no matter what happens. But promise me, Dad. Promise me, Dad. You will be okay. We could finish each other's sentence. I knew what he meant. He knew I'd never walk away from my responsibilities to the family. But he wanted me to stay engaged in public policy and public life, not as an elected official, to stay engaged, to fight for the things I always fought for. 
because those you've been through it, the first instinct is withdraw. You don't want to be out there. And so my measure has been this way for a long time. As I wrote in the book, I, I don't know when it occurred, but sometime when my boys were in their early teens, I found myself looking up to them. That's a bizarre thing for a father to say, but I mean it sincerely, looking up to them. If my son or Hunter walked in now, he's 46 years old, he'd walk over, touch my face and Dad, you okay? Anything I can get for you, Dad? Dad, come on now. It's late. We got to go. Come on, Dad. Always taking care of me. They help raise me. And so the question I ask myself, a lot of you do, some of you lost. Is he proud of me? Am I doing what he want me to do? And those you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. It matters. That's purpose. Because the truth is, I know from a sad experience, that they're part of you. They never leave you. How many of you to this day lost a beloved father or mother and you're about to do something and say, what would dad think? What would mom think? I mean, for real. No matter how old you are. It matters. They're still part of your life. They're still part of your life. So my advice is find something that moves you. Purpose. Purpose. Whether it's bringing back that little league team in your neighborhood that wasn't there before. Whether it's being engaged in doing something that your son or daughter or your husband or wife really wanted you to do. Because the day will come for those you've been through it. I promise you, I can tell you from experience. The day will come when his or her memory will bring a smile to your lips before it brings a tear to your eye. That's when you know you're going to make it. That day will come, I promise you. As unbelievable as it is to many of you now, it will come. And one last thing. How many of you have gone through some serious loss and people come up to you and say, I know how you feel. And after about the 300 person, you feel like saying, you have no idea how the hell I feel. You know they mean well, but it's like, don't say that to me. I got a phone call after my wife and daughter were killed by a retired former governor of New Jersey. I never met. He was 40 years my senior, Governor Hughes of New Jersey. And he called me to tell me he knew how I felt. Before I could say anything, he said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who the hell is he to say that? And he told me the story of how he lost his, he was walking home for lunch across the green in Trenton to his apartment. And a woman who came twice a week to help came running across the green and said, she's dead, she's dead. She died of an aneurysm, his wife. He said, I understand. He said, I have a piece of advice. Every day you go to bed, mark in a calendar what kind of day you had from 1 to 10. One being as bad as the day you felt when you heard the news. 10 being the best day of your life. You won't have any 10s for a long time. He says, just mark it. 
don't do anything with the calendar except six months later, take out a piece of graph paper and put it on a graph. Because those of you who had loss, you passed that field you used to, he or she liked. You feel like it happened yesterday. Or you have that fragrance you smell, or you open the closet door. He said, but what you'll find when you put it on a graph paper, the downs are just as far down, but they get further and further apart. That's when you know. That's when you know. It's okay. Everybody's got pain. You'll make it. You'll make it. And what's satisfying about the book, and I've got to leave and go do a book event tonight with a couple thousand people here in, in uh, San Francisco on the book tour, um, is people come up and the strangest experiences for a photo line to get in a photo line. And I've had at least 25 people say things like, I'll give you one example. Mr. Vice President, I had to come and see you. Thank you for writing the book. My daughter died three days ago. Whoa. He said, I just had to come. Will you hug me? Will you hug me? Just tell me it's going to be okay. The guy used to be a White House photographer, covering an event that I was doing at the uh, Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people it holds, three, four thousand people. Afterwards, he said, I don't know how you're doing this, Mr. Vice President, but thank you for letting me take these pictures tonight. And I get a call, six o'clock in the morning. He went home and got news that his son who lived in Alabama was an automobile accident, was dead. He just had a call and talk. What do I do? What do I do? How many of you have dealt with such really difficult things? But you do it. And you do it in large part because who's left? Because who's left? I got two beautiful grandchildren. His children. I look at him, and I see my son. I look at my son, Hunter. I see my son. You all have something like that, if you're lucky. You can get through it. It's life. Why me? Why not? Thank you all for listening. Thanks.